0: Uh, there are two totally different facets there and I, I would just say I agree with you on both one is I do think there is a need for rules and for norms and space behavior and I I hold some deep kernel of hope that we could come to agreement with Russia and China on that in some not too distant future uh, at the same time nothing there would uh, in my mind prevent us or preclude us from pursuing both offensive and defensive capabilities to ensure that we can defend our own assets and
1: uh, prevail in a conflict From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. That was John Plum, U.S. President Joe Biden's nominee to become the Department of Defense's first-ever Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. On Thursday, he was answering questions posed by members of the Senate Armed Services Committee during his nomination hearing. Those senators were interested in a number of topics, which included trying to answer the question of how can the United States protect its space-based assets from attack, especially from kinetic weapons systems like the one Russia tested last November. Here's an exchange between Senator Joe Manchin and Plum.
2: Okay, and Dr. Plum, I think you might have talked about this uh, earlier, uh,
1: but the Russian China's have an interest in demonstrating the capability of their anti-satellite weapons. Given our military reliance upon satellites for navigation and communication, this capability can severely weaken, I believe, very, very much so, our military's Ability to respond effectively in the opening hours of a conflict. So how prepared? Do you assess that we are to protect against these threats so that we won't be immobile?
0: Uh, thanks senator uh, the, the anti-satellite kinetic debris cloud cloud causing tests, both the China and Russia are uh, Deeply disturbing and a concern to me I don't have the advantage of the classified briefings on our ability to fight through a threat today uh, what I will commit to you is that, if confirmed, I will work to make sure that our architecture is more resilient, so that this type of attack is uh, less attractive to an adversary.
2: Do you do you have any
1: opinions on basically what the Department of Defense uh, could do to defend against China's uh, that they've demonstrated their anti-satellite capabilities, uh,
0: Senator? There's a there's a number of possibilities. Obviously, one possibility that I fully agree with, Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks uh, said at the first National Space Council meeting for the Biden administration that the Department of Defense is in favor of banning uh, kinetic anti-satellite tests uh, by all nations. So I think that would, that would help. I also think making sure that we have uh, constellations that are resilient so we're not entirely dependent on one particular asset would also be helpful. Uh, and I imagine there are Any number of other operations at classified levels that I'd be happy to discuss with you if confirmed.
1: So did you hear it, that word resilient? What that means in English is that the DOD, specifically the U.S. Space Force, will deploy enough satellites so that if one were destroyed, there would be multitudes of surviving backup satellites that could take over the job. And it also means figuring out how to harden satellites so they can take a hit and continue to function. But Blum's response leaves an unanswered question. If you can see the bullet coming, well, why not command a satellite to simply dodge it? Missiles travel at hypersonic speeds, but they still take minutes to reach orbital altitudes and they can be tracked. Plus, many satellites have thrusters to adjust their orbits. The problem is, our satellites are designed to gently make course corrections, not jump out of the way of an oncoming object, and they only have so much fuel to make those minor course corrections. According to my guest for this week's episode, that makes them close to sitting ducks. Christopher Stone is with the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Research Center, and he has a proposal. He's arguing that our critical space systems, after they've been launched into orbit, should be powered by thermal nuclear propulsion engines. He believes that would allow satellites and other spacecraft to move more quickly and much more efficiently, to dodge missiles and shield-piercing lasers. Sounds good. The idea is not new. But there is a reason why spacefaring nations have mostly relied on chemical propulsion. There was an international incident. In 1978, the nuclear powered Russian satellite Cosmos 954 malfunctioned and fell back to Earth, scattering some 100 pieces of radiological debris across 500 miles in Canada's Northwest Territories. That was a long time ago, and engineering has certainly evolved. Russia and China and the United States are all pursuing space thermonuclear power, or SNP, for missions to the moon and beyond. Chris Stone thinks we need to use SNP for maneuver warfare on orbit and beyond. Here's our discussion. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for coming back on the downlink.
2: Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it.
1: I know you were on just last week, but this week you have a really special uh, policy paper that's just come out. And before we get to that, could you please, um, again, just tell us what you do and um, what you're working on?
2: Sure. Um, I'm Christopher Stone. I'm the Senior Fellow for Space Studies at the Mitchell Institute's Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence in DC, and I work on uh, policy and strategy related items. Uh, surrounding the Space Force, national security space, and uh, deterrence and war fighting.
1: So today you introduced uh, the press. You gave us a preview of a paper that you are introducing to the rest of the world and the policy world here in Washington, D.C. Tell us about what you're proposing. I mean, what's going on? It's nuclear, it's propulsion, it's rockets, it's space, it's orbits, and it's international competition.
2: Yeah, it definitely includes all of that. What it is, is um, the title is Maneuver Warfare in Space, uh, the Strategic Imperative of Nuclear Propulsion. And what it deals with is the the situation that we're facing in Great Power Competition with the Chinese and Russians, Chinese primarily in the in the rate of development of counter-space weapon systems and things of that sort. And one of the, the issues that we talk about in the paper is the fact that the Chinese currently are engaging in a strategy known as maneuver warfare. In Chinese writings, this is called mobile warfare. And what that essentially means is at the strategic level is you have two different layers. You have a, a psychological impact and you have a physical impact. The psychological impact is one that's big with the Chinese for thousands of years, and that's trying to get into the head of the adversary, create friction, create fear, um, and make it seem to where that whatever it is they do in the physical realm will have enough psychological impact to prevent them from interfering in whatever strategic or military operations or objectives that they're trying to achieve. And then the physical side is more of a tactical level that deals with what most people think of when they hear maneuver warfare, and that is the movement and maneuver of tactical level forces. So think of a a tank on the ground with another army, and they're trying to outflank somebody to gain a position of advantage to defeat and destroy them in in a battle. That is that is similar to what happens in space, only um, it's it requires a lot more energy and uh, it's, a, it's a lot harder to do with our current situation, which is our constellations uh, that we have currently in orbit. So we propose a solution for nuclear thermal and, and we can talk more about whichever parts of that you'd like.
1: And when you say um, it requires a lot more energy, I mean, we're not talking about energy, political energy. I mean, you're actually talking about Newton's.
2: Well, I mean, there there is a need for political energy in the sense that um, most of the reason why we haven't deployed a nuclear thermal propulsion uh, maneuver warfare type system like the Chinese are looking at doing is because of political policy reasons primarily over the decades. Um, but no, we're primarily when we talk about energy, we're talking about the energy it takes to get from point A to point B. And like for an airplane that needs to fly at a certain speed and a certain altitude to get to a certain point by a certain time, you need to have amounts of, certain amounts of thrust that can, that can carry the weight of whatever the payload is on the airplane, that kind of thing. But in space, you have to deal with different issues. You have to deal with gravity. You have to deal with um, different gravity wells. You have to deal with um, the curvature of the Earth, the, the, the rotation of the Earth. And when you're going from different orbits at different altitudes, so there's a lot of things that have to happen for you to get anywhere in space. And to do that efficiently requires a lot of propellant in the chemical um, systems that we, we now have. And that's why most of the satellites are designed to operate in predictable, consistent orbits, just relying on, on Sir Isaac Newton's you know, viewpoints and science and, and laws. So if you want to get from, let's say, low Earth orbit, to a higher orbit, like a geostationary or geosynchronous orbit, that requires energy. If you want to change what's called planes, which is essentially a different tilt to the axis off the equator you need to operate in to get a certain part of the Earth in your sensor, or part of space for that matter, that's going to take a lot of energy. And our current systems are just not um, designed for that kind of thing. And now, with the topic of the paper being primarily of military focus, um, we're not designed to rapidly maneuver to avoid threats, um, such as the ones that the Chinese and Russians are currently deploying, as well as the future ones they're looking at, such as nuclear thermal propulsion spacecraft.
1: So what is your analysis of the competition, like China and Russia? And I've heard they've been partnering?
2: Yeah, there's... um, My overall assessment is is that the Chinese are rapidly advancing. In fact, the intelligence community open-source reports state that they're the most rapidly developing and deploying space uh, force of of the two major adversaries that we talk about in the national defense strategy. Um, The Russians are are playing catch-up back to kind of where they were before the end of the Soviet Union, recently testing kinetic interceptor anti-satellite missiles, lasers, things of that sort. The Chinese have been doing the same thing, building what they call a multi-layered attack architecture, which basically just gives them the ability to have non-kinetic, meaning like jammers and lasers that just dazzle um, systems to full up uh, microwave emitters or Burn through high-energy lasers or missile systems even nuclear weapons in some degrees you can electromagnetic pulse all sorts of stuff so you they're building this they have options on how they can escalate or de-escalate a, a crisis in their own favor in space and they believe that our space constellations that we're reliant upon for everything economically militarily whatever is our soft ribs and our critical vulnerability and one of the key pieces of maneuver warfare or mobile warfare is exploiting those vulnerabilities for advantage and if they are able to do that, which they're clearly looking at they're going to be trying to deploy um, nuclear-propelled spacecraft by 2040, then we have a lot of work to do to prevent that from occurring. Otherwise, we could be in a severe world of hurt.
1: So are we ready for that? I mean, what's the state of our current defense space architecture?
2: Well, right now, uh, we have a lot of real exquisite systems that were designed for a more benign environment. Um such as what we had in the 90s and early 2000s, where we thought, you know, post-Cold War, the Russians don't have the money to do a lot of this, the Chinese really weren't there technically at the time. And so we really had no competitor that could challenge uh, our access to space. And now, uh, since the Chinese started testing weapon systems in the early 2000s, around 2007, um, out for, into, into LEO and then into GEO, the farther orbits by 2014, Pretty much all of our orbits, or all of our satellites in each of these orbits, were vulnerable to attack, both non-kinetic with jammers or lasers or whatever, but also to kinetic missile hits. As a result of that, um, our satellites are in these predictable orbits that are easy to track and easy to target, and they're very difficult to ma- to maneuver. So we have very limited ability to maneuver out of the way of a missile or a laser, provided, we, of course, we have indications and warning. But right now, we don't have the weapon systems to match multi-layered attack architecture because over the years we have attempted to prevent space from becoming a war fighting domain by using what's known as restraint, strategic restraint, things of that sort and basically just saying we use it to operate and help terrestrial forces but we're not going to militarize or weaponize space and which are two terms I don't like but that's what we use and so as a result um, we find ourselves in a situation where now we're at risk and we're playing catch up in trying to what we need to defend ourselves.
1: You know, there are going to be people who are going to say, "Well, why not just stick with the fuel, the fuel, the regular fuel propellant that is already in standard use across all all the various launches that we have already? Why not just continue doing the same old?"
2: Well, there are some constellational, some systems in space that could stick with that. There are some that are that are good for that. The ones that are vital and critical infrastructure to our society, our economy, our military should have the ability to have maneuverability for defense. And in order to have a sustainable way to do that requires a propellant that's more efficient, has greater energy, and can, can last a long time. And current propellants on space vehicles like Hydrazine or, or some of the others, they're, the satellites are not designed to do that. They were designed to keep them in their orbits, their mission orbits to do their jobs. They were not designed to make lots of massive maneuvers to get out of the way of missiles or lasers or whatnot. So nuclear propulsion provides in a way that's, it's reliable, it doesn't require combustion, so there's no worry about explosions. Um, It's more efficient with fuel, you can last longer, you can go out to the moon and back on one tank of gas, essentially. longer mission times and it has greater energy density meaning it has greater potential energy to do stuff so like for example um, nuclear propulsion can give a hundred thousand hundred thousand Newtons of thrust which for those who don't know what that means it's essentially enough to accelerate a car from zero to 60 in less than a quarter of a second so you have a lot quicker a lot more responsive um, with less fuel and the energy density on a sP engine, is a million, 4 million times greater than hydrazine. So you've got 4 million times greater energy potential um, than you would in what we currently are using. So that allows them to do that, and it's safe thanks to the advancement in technology over the years. So that's why. It gives you the, the, the speed, the efficiency, the maneuverability, and the agility that you just don't have right now with our current setup.
1: We're gonna take a quick break from Chris to get a basic understanding of why nuclear propulsion has always been an attractive option for space travel. This is from a 1968 Department of Energy film called Nuclear Propulsion in Space. I did say the idea wasn't new.
3: Why is the nuclear rocket so much better than the chemical rocket? In rocket propulsion, exhaust velocity determines propulsion efficiency. At a given temperature, the lighter the exhaust gas, the higher the exhaust velocity. And the higher the exhaust velocity, the more thrust is generated for each pound of propellant consumed per second. The nuclear rocket merely heats hydrogen, the lightest element of all, and expels it at tremendous velocity. Chemical rockets burn fuel to produce exhaust gases that contain heavier elements. So at the same exhaust temperature, The exhaust velocity is much lower and each pound consumed per second produces less thrust. Rocket efficiency is stated in seconds of specific impulse. This refers to the time in seconds that one pound of propellant will deliver one pound of thrust. The higher the seconds of specific impulse, the greater the propellant economy. Our best chemical rockets of today are limited to a specific impulse of about 450 seconds and only slight improvement can be expected. On the other hand, full-scale nuclear reactor tests have achieved 800 seconds, and laboratory tests promise even more, perhaps as much as 900 seconds. This means the nuclear rocket, with its lightweight, high-velocity exhaust, will use propellant about twice as efficiently as chemical rockets. This, then, is the principal advantage of nuclear propulsion.
1: So, for example, a nuclear-powered satellite or a spacecraft, and please bear in mind, this is not the launching rocket which Chris proposes will still use chemical fuel, but this is about the engine in the spacecraft that the rocket takes up to orbit. That spacecraft would require less fuel by weight to get to where it's going. So if the fuel has less weight... That same launching rocket can take up a larger spacecraft that carries more stuff or additional fuel to go further, faster. In May, Russia announced that it was working to launch a nuclear-powered tugboat-like spacecraft in 2030, and China is working to a 2040 deadline to launch a nuclear-powered interplanetary space plane. In the U.S., DARPA intends to test its nuclear-powered Draco spacecraft in 2025. That program is intended to address transportation needs between the Earth and the Moon. Chris's sites are set closer to home, on the satellites, in orbit, that are key to national defense. Having more fuel available means the satellite operator would be able to do more than just tweak the satellite's orbital position. If need be, that operator would have the fuel to swiftly move the satellite out of harm's way to dodge danger. Or the operator could use that satellite in an offensive engagement repeatedly with fuel to spare. Now let's get back to the conversation with Chris. You said that we've spent years perhaps maybe even decades, restraining ourselves and that we've lost time and that there is actually a clock ticking. You know, what is the deadline and what does that deadline mean?
2: Well, I think you're probably referring to the 2040 time frame where the Chinese are looking at through open source uh, publications of having what they call fleets of nuclear thermal propulsion vehicles traversing all orbits around the Earth and out to, out to the moon and back. And... We have, like I said earlier, we've, we were designed for a more benign environment, exquisite technology, huge satellites, um, and, and we're even looking at, at smaller satellites and lots of what's called proliferated constellations where there's just tons of of satellites, like the SpaceX Starlink is a commercial example, what the space development agency is doing with their, their satellite constellations, national space defense architecture, lots and lots of satellites to make it harder to hit all of them. But... Times have changed. We're we're not in a benign environment. We're in a war fighting environment, because of the Russians and Chinese actions, um, because they believe that that's our soft underbelly that they can exploit and take us down. And as a result of that, we have to be willing to put the resources into getting this kind of a system operational before the 2030s. And I say that because even though it says they want fleets by the 2040, 2030s is more likely because they're very good at keeping their schedule and testing things and getting it operational. So we need to be ahead of that.
1: So do we have a chance of uh, meeting that kind of a schedule? What is it? DARPA is actually pursuing this, is it not?
2: Yeah, DARPA is actually... the most latest program is is called the demonstration rocket for agile cislunar operations or draco and that is um is looking at a a spacecraft with a nuclear thermal propulsion engine that as the name implies has the ability to rapidly and agilely get out to the moon and back as necessary for its mission and because of that they're looking at testing it in space for the first time we've tested several programs like nerva in the 60s and and some other stuff on on paper in the 80s but we've never actually tested one in space so this will be the first time if all goes well we'll be able to test it in space in FY25 and if all goes well um, they're telling me that they could have it operationalized in a matter of just single-digit years so in order to get ahead of the adversary we need to start looking at getting the resources and the program of record going so that we don't get stuck in the science and technology research and development phase like every other program has, but we can get it operationalized and get it up in space and uh, and use fully for offensive and defensive needs that we have.
1: In this, in this policy paper that you've authored that has been published and that's going to really go live tomorrow, what is the number one message that you want us, the public, uh, lawmakers, policymakers, I mean, we've got a, a person who's been testifying on the Hill today to be the new Assistant Secretary of Defense for space. What do you want them to walk away with?
2: Well, first, I understand that a lot of people are concerned when they hear the word "nuclear" about safety, and what I can say is is that there is always risk involved in everything we do in space, so chemical rockets have toxic propellants, they have a tendency to explode if everything doesn't work just right, and yet we've been able to get the technology matured enough to where most of our launches are pretty reliable. The other thing is is that we have a we have a serious problem we are at risk across all orbits. We're reliant upon our satellite constellations for daily life, pumping gas, bank transfers, airline transport, you name it. Energy plants, power plants, um, and military operations. And without that, uh, our country is at great risk of losing any conflict that might come in the future. Because all of us, all of our society, all of our economy, all of our ability to project global power when needed, is tied into space. Which is again. Why it's it's undefended, it's vulnerable, it's predictable, and that's why they're exploiting it. It to me, I understand that fear, but the technology is such to where safety has been mitigated to the point where it's exceeded anything that we've ever had before because of materials and things advancing. And I would say that while people might be concerned or fearful of, of deploying such a, such a system, the Chinese are not fearful, and neither are the Russians. And I would say what's more, what's more. What's worth being afraid of more, having a nuclear thermal propulsion vehicle in space that can keep us safe or not doing it and letting the adversary get the upper hand again, just like they have with hypersonics, which I might mention, hypersonics we were ahead of for years, and then when we didn't think we needed them, we stopped doing stuff with them, and we, now we're playing catch-up and we're not doing a very good job. So I don't want to be behind the power curve again on something as vital as having maneuver advantage for defense and offense in space.
1: Thank you very much for your time, Chris.
2: Thank you. Appreciate it.
1: That's it for this week. Be sure to check back with the Defense and Aerospace Report for the latest defense news and insights brought to you by Vago Moradian, who is the editor for all the Deaf Air Report podcasts. And check out CAVA's Ships, which is our weekly podcast about the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.